Hopefully this all works. Um, it is a pleasure to be with you. Um, like Mark said, it is my first time up here, so I'm going to set up, but I would like you to turn to the person next to you. If it's a person you don't know, introduce yourself and ask and answer the question, uh, what is one thing you love and what is something ridiculous you have done for that item or thing that you love? Really quick, I'm going to set up and then we'll start together. All right. Uh, hopefully we can com continue these conversations over dinner. I would love to hear your responses. Um, and yeah, I'd love to tell you some stories of ridiculous things I've done uh, for things that I love. Um, but I'm going to pray as we start because I need God's help and we all need God help, God's help. Um, and luckily, he's a God who loves to help his children. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the book that the prophet Isaiah wrote. Father, we thank you for the things it has to teach us. And we thank you that you are a God that loves to be worshipped. We thank you that... Yeah, you are a God that reveals himself through the Bible um, that we may worship you. And Father, I pray as I speak tonight that you would help me and you would help us all to um, yeah, gain some really good knowledge and wisdom from the book of Isaiah. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, what do you worship? Not even just in a church context, in your everyday life, what do you worship? Note I'm not asking if you worship because I'm pretty convinced that we all worship something, whether we call it that or not. And what we worship acts as kind of a rudder in our lives. Uh, if you worship a sporting team, you might wake up at a ridiculous time in the morning to watch them play their games. If you worship a job or a paycheck, you will do what you need to to get ahead, or whatever you can to elevate yourself within a company. If you worship a relationship, you will change yourself to become more like the person that you like wants you to be. So what do you worship? And what is worship? If you've been around uh, WBC for a little while, you've probably heard us talk about worship before. You may even know that my role here at 6pm Church is the worship person. But what does that mean? Um, for some of you, I suspect that the word worship may be a little bit scary. Maybe you have negative connotations with the word. Think that if we focus too hard on worship, we are in risk of becoming a church that's all about flashing lights and smoke machines. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure there are some of you who hear the word worship and get really excited. You love the idea of worshiping God in big and exciting ways with your Christian family. And for some of you, worship might just be the 20 or so minutes we spend singing here on a Sunday. Tonight, uh, I'm going to be going through what true worship looks like and um, we're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah as a model for worship. Uh, this bit in Isaiah kind of kicks off his prophetic career. Um, and we see Isaiah meet the living and holy God. Um, and yeah, we see his life change. So, what is worship? Tonight, I'll be breaking it down into uh, two uh, categories, two things. Um, and you may have heard these referenced before. I'll be breaking... Whoop. That's not what we want that to do. That's okay. Um, I'll be breaking worship down into the ideas of adoration and action. Uh, before I get into uh, these two topics, who is Isaiah? Like I said, he's a prophet, someone God spoke through to the nation of Israel. And while he was, in, uh, while he was a prophet to Israel, they're in a pretty bad spot. But we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, here in Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah have a vision, a vision of God himself. So we've got to start talking about adoration now. Uh, adoration is a heart thing. Is this going to work? Yes. Uh, adoration is a heart thing. To adore something is to be completely devoted to it. To love it 
And in tonight's passage, we see that Isaiah adores God. Um, To explore adoration, I'll be breaking it up into three parts. Things are slowly getting smaller. Um, And those three parts are recognizing who God is, recognizing our sin, and recognizing grace. Uh, First, recognizing who God is. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to be looking at it, fact-checking me against the word. Um, And we're going to read Isaiah 6, 1-4 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Here we have one of the most vivid images of God in the Bible, at least I think so. Um, While we don't get to see his face, we get a sense of his grandeur, don't we? The train of his robe, just the bottom bit, fills the temple. It's about 180 feet long, at its highest 207 feet tall. And then there are these seraphim, these incredibly intimidating beings. Their names literally mean the burning ones. And what are they doing? They're not flying around being like, hey, look how cool my six wings are. Isn't it weird that we need six of these to fly? Um, They're not bragging about how great they are. What do we see them doing? They're calling out to each other, almost reminding each other of something. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, Yeah, because in the Bible it says that they say this with such emphasis that the whole temple shakes and is filled with smoke. Um, and what are they doing with these really impressive looking wings? They're covering their face and their feet, ashamed to be before the holy and almighty God. I don't know about you, but I read this description of God, and I can't help but be in awe. I wonder, when you think of God, do you just think of like a bearded guy reclining on a cloud? Uh, Do you imagine maybe some of the other images we're given in the Old Testament, a pillar of smoke or um, a cloud leading Israel through the desert? Maybe you just imagine Morgan Freeman. I guess it doesn't really matter what image of God you have in your head, but what does matter is if you view God as this all-powerful creator, holy and perfect being. Holy is a weird word. We sing it a lot. We just uh, sung it in one of the songs then. We've got to sing it in a couple of the songs later. Do we know what holy means? I, um, of course, went to the internet, found one of those uh, things that translates the original Bible text, um, and holy means set apart. Think about that for a second. Holy means set apart. Outside of this world of sin and mess and brokenness, God is holy. God is holy, and do we truly understand what that means? We have a holy God. Um, We're going to jump a couple of times tonight, so uh, I hope you are ready to do that. Uh, We're going to jump into the New Testament. We're going to go to Revelation 1. Flick with me or scroll with me or swipe with me. It'll also be on the screen. Yes, it'll be on the screen. Revelation 1. Um, We're going to pick up from uh, verse 12 there. Um, This is another vision that someone else in the Bible has, someone named John. Revelation 1. I turned around to see that the voice was speaking... Sorry, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Uh, Sorry, finishing at 18. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever and hold the keys of death and Hades. We get another description here, don't we? Uh, There are echoes almost in this description of the description we read in Isaiah. Uh, Later on in Revelation, we see some more creatures who also have six wings, and we see them declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This this Son of Man, this Holy One, spoiler alert, uh, is Jesus returned in His glory, ushering in the new creation. The Holy Chosen One of God, sent to judge the world and to reign forever and sent to reign as the forever perfect king. Friends, I wonder, do we think about Jesus and God in this way? Uh, For true worship and true adoration, I think that this is where we have to start. To fully adore the God of the universe, first we have to realize who he is and the magnitude of exactly um, what that means. So recognizing God is the first step in adoration, and it leads very nicely into the next step, recognizing our own sin. We're going to jump back to Isaiah now. Um, Hopefully you kept a thumb there or can just scroll back on your phone or you're content to read it on the screen. That's also fine. Uh, Jumping back into Isaiah, picking up at verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah was like a shining light among a dark nation. One commentator I was reading describes Isaiah like this. Isaiah, a man of strong character, deep faith in God, courage and conviction. He was the man of the hour whom the Lord selected to carry the torch of truth in the midst of spiritual darkness. Truly, Isaiah may be called the dean of all prophets. Pretty good uh, description. If I ever get described as the dean of something, I'm going to be pretty happy with the way my life turned out. Uh, And even this upstanding man of the Lord, when faced with the almighty God, is terrified. He declares himself ruined, literally to be ceased or destroyed. That is how Isaiah feels uh, in the presence of this almighty God. And not just because the image of God is truly intimidating. No, we can see why Isaiah is so scared. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes his sin, and standing before the holy and perfect God, he's terrified. Even though Isaiah is an upstanding citizen, he knows that there are things in his heart that damn him before a holy and perfect God. He knows that he could never be good enough to stand where he's standing, 
Uh, we've got to flip back to Revelation, sorry, but uh, at least your wrists will be very strong at the end of this sermon. Got to flip back to Revelation 1, um, and just the end of the passage we, uh, we saw there. Uh, yeah, this is John speaking. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John. This is John who had been with Jesus while he was alive on earth. But still, upon seeing him in his full glory, he is terrified not just because of his visage, but because John, just like Isaiah, has a deep conviction of his sin. And this is made so, so apparent in the presence of the Lord. He can't help but be brought to his knees. Have you ever thought about your relationship with God like this? Have you ever been struck by just how damned your sin makes you? It's not a comfortable place to be. It's not something we like to think about. I know I don't like to think about it. Um, I think we can sometimes get so caught up in the forgiveness that God offers, which is so, so important to think about. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But to truly understand the magnitude of God's forgiveness, we need to first recognize our sin. We need to recognize that in the face of a holy and almighty, perfect creator of the universe... We're destitute, we're filthy, we are wretched, and we deserve to die. Not only to die, but to be wiped from creation, to be ruined, to fall down as though dead. Uh, This is the very hard but very important second step of adoration. And I think it's often the most overlooked one. If we have nothing to be saved from, If there's no consequence, no reason to turn around and run the other way, why would we not just continue to walk down the easy road? Why would we not live life in the way that we want? Why would we not, why would we want to turn around and go crawling back to God on our knees? So that's the second step of adoration, recognizing our sin. But luckily for us and luckily for Isaiah, That's not it. That's not where God left him. Uh, We're going to go to our third point now, which is recognition of grace. Back into Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Uh, to understand this properly, we might need a little bit of context, although we have a few like mining people with mining backgrounds here, so um, you'll probably be able to explain this a little bit better uh, than I can. But in the ancient world, and in today's world as I understand it, uh, fire is how you purify stuff. You boil water, you refine metals, fire burns away impurities and makes stuff the cleanest, most pure version of itself. Uh, and so... Uh, I think there's some significance in the fact that these coals, these hot things are taken and used to purify Isaiah. Um, But these aren't just any coals. Remember that these seraphim, whose name mean the burning ones, can't bear to touch these coals with their bare hands. They have to use tongs to pick them up. So this is probably a pretty hot fire, Um, a fire that comes from God's own altar. And it's with this fire that Isaiah is cleansed. The seraphim says it, Your sin is atoned for, or in more common language, your sin has been paid for. 
the debt of your sin, the death and ruin that you deserve, is paid for. But that's not the only thing the seraphim says, is it? Looking at verse 7, not only is Isaiah's sin atoned for, but the guilt is taken away. For me, this is definitely one of the hardest things to understand about grace. I understand that my sin is paid for, and so on judgment day, nothing to worry about. But in the meantime, living my day-to-day now, sometimes I just feel really bad. I go through life constantly looking at the things I've done, the things I know I shouldn't have done, the things no one else knows about me, and I feel so incredibly guilty. It can be debilitating sometimes. Sometimes I get overwhelmed, and it's times like these where I can find myself getting legalistic, trying to do lots of stuff to make myself right with God. Uh, We've got to flick into the New Testament, but we've got to go to Romans now. Um, It's just after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. I uh, don't have enough bookmarks to keep uh, all of these passages open, but Romans 5, starting at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, When we're still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sums it up beautifully, doesn't it? While we were still sinners, while we were still in open rebellion against God, while we were deserving of death and wrath and judgment, Christ died for us, and he didn't die as a a result of us doing enough good things to earn it. He didn't die because we were righteous. He died because of his own great love. I think it's uh, a very important thing to be honest with yourself uh, right now. Um, Are you still trying to do good things to earn God's grace? Are you still motivated by your own guilt, the want to be good enough, In the light of the rest of Isaiah's experience, the recognition of who God is and the magnitude of our sin, when we recognize these things, how is it possible that we can do anything to be worthy of God on our own? Remember, we are ruined when we become before God. Only by God coming to us, by him purifying us and atoning for our sin, can we have forgiveness. Can our guilt be taken away? And can we truly adore God? Because if we earn grace or salvation ourselves, we just end up adoring ourselves. Now, I'm not sure about you in thinking about these things, but while I was writing this sermon, I was struck by the fact that I like God. At times, I fear God. But if this is our benchmark of adoration, I don't know that I can say I always adore God. Imagine what a whole church full of people adoring God like this would look like. Imagine what that would look like in our church. If we were a room full of people that had a true and full understanding of who God is, imagine how that would change the way we sing. Imagine how that would change the way we pray. This is the holy set-apart God we're talking about. Surely we would sing with conviction Surely we would pray with confidence because of who our God is. Well, what about if we as a group of people were those who understood the weight and seriousness of our sin? 
Imagine the way we would come before God to beg for forgiveness. How we would interact with others, those who don't know God yet, knowing that every human in the world, no matter how morally upright, was ruined before the perfect and holy one. Surely that would make our prayers more sincere. Surely it would make our interactions with others more full of love and desperate to show them the way to forgiveness. And if we, as a church, had a grasp on God's grace, the free gift given not because of who we are, but because of who God is, surely that gives us reason to be glad, to sing and to thank God loudly, to show grace and forgiveness to others because we have been shown so much. So, as I'm kind of alluding to, in response to adoration, there's a natural action response. When you love something so much, you can't help but want to do something, uh, grand gestures in response to it. And this brings us very uh, conveniently to the second part of Isaiah's worship. Uh, And action is summed up in one very simple statement. Send me. Back into Isaiah now, picking up at the last verse that we had read, Isaiah 6. Uh, Sorry, Isaiah 6, uh, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Sounds so easy. Just ask God, send me. Job done. Adoration, action, done, lock it in, best worshiper ever. Um, It almost sounds like Isaiah's kind of asking to go on a holiday maybe or a company trip. I mean, Mark, if someone has to go down to Melbourne for that conference, I mean, I guess I'll I'll send me if you need to. I mean, oh, it's on the same time as that really cool like coffee expo. Oh, what a shame, but send me, you know, if you need to, it's fine. Um... But for anyone who's read chunks of Isaiah, you'll know that this sending isn't a holiday. Um, In fact, I think Isaiah knows that it's going to be really, really, really hard. Um, So let me uh, give you a brief rundown of the first five chapters of Isaiah, the bits before this in the book. Uh, Israel, the people Isaiah is being asked to send to, uh, is called a rebellious child a brood of evildoers. Uh, The country is called desolate. Its cities are described as on fire, literally on fire. Um, All of the religious things that Israel is trying to do to seek the Lord's favor, worthless. God says he detests them. Uh, They're told that there are young men from other countries coming to take their land. There will be mourning and there will be suffering in the nation. This is the people Isaiah is asking to be sent to. This is the people that Isaiah himself called a people of unclean lips. So, not the easiest crowd. It's like if someone from Sydney came here to tell all of us how good living in Sydney was. It's like, mate, we live in Wollongong. We all moved away from Sydney very intentionally. We made that choice. Our beaches are better, our coffees are better. And rent, while is slowly climbing, is not quite as expensive as it is in Sydney. So, it's a rough crowd. Uh, And not only that, but the message that God has to tell his people isn't the best message either. And God says that the people are going to have calloused hearts, dull ears, and closed eyes. 
Not going to lie, in preparation for this sermon, I prayed that none, no one would have callous hearts, dull ears, and closed eyes. Um, and yeah, it's going to be bad news. There is good news, but it's mostly going to be bad news. The first thing Isaiah is told to tell them is that they're about to be taken away, scattered among the nations. They're going to lose the Holy Land, the land that like this much of the Bible has been spent trying to get to. They're going to lose that, and there's nothing they can do about it. There'll be a tenth left in the Holy Land, but the city will be laid to waste. But there is also hope. In the next chapter, after some more doom and gloom, we get a mention of an Emmanuel, a God with us, born of a virgin. And later in chapter 9, after some more bad stuff and being told they've got to be slaves for a while, we're told that this Emmanuel will reign on David's throne forever. This is the message that Isaiah is given to tell Israel. So why, why, why do it? Surely there are easier things to do. God, I adore you, but this particular action, it seems a little hard. Can't I just be a priest with like the cool robe and the hat? Can't I like show my adoration in you just by like getting really close with a mate and reading the Torah? Surely there are easier things for me to do. What's the point? Why do something on this scale? Why Isaiah? Why one man? Uh, John Piper, in a sermon on mission, once said that worship is the goal and fuel of missions. He said that missions exist where worship doesn't. Missions are our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private privilege. It's for all. And that is why we go. Because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus And we want all the families of the earth included. I love that quote because I think it sums up so well why um, Isaiah goes. True worship is adoration that leads to action. It's an overflow of the love of your heart to the movement of your hands. It's longing to see the whole world come to worship the holy and true God who you love to worship so much. Okay, this is the last flicking we've got to do. We've got to go to Acts 2. We're going to go to verse 22. It'll be on the screen. This is a long one. Um, So Acts 2, starting at 22. This is Peter speaking. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Uh, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on earth that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father and promised the Holy Spirit, 
Sorry. Uh, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Uh, continuing to 36. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, the Lord and the Messiah. Here, Peter declares that Jesus is the Emmanuel that we read about in Isaiah 6. That he is the one that God sent to rule over all eternity, to sit on David's throne forever and to bring salvation. And as you read more of the New Testament, you learn that this isn't just for Israel, it's for all of the nations. And if you look at the story of Peter's life that we get in the Gospels, we see a bit of a pattern. We see Peter recognize who Jesus is. We see Peter come to grips with his own sin. And we see Peter understand a measure of grace uh, that he's offered. And with the Holy Spirit, his response to this, for the rest of the New Testament and the rest of his life, is to go and act in response. Peter and the rest of the disciples and many others commit their lives to action. The action of spreading the good news of Christ to all the nations. To show the nations who God is, to convict the nations of their sin, and to show them that God's grace is a free gift that brings salvation. This, in turn, leads to those people that they told telling others about who God is, the nature of sin, and grace that means salvation. And that continued for 2,000 years until this very day. I'm sure in each of your lives there's been someone who has told you who God is, who has explained to you the weight of sin and has uh, explained that God offers the free gift of grace that brings salvation. And it's something we continue to do as a church. We do it up here in the stage. We do it in our home groups. We do it um, as we meet one-to-one uh, -one with each other. Friends, worship of the holy and living God is so much more than simply singing together on a Sunday, isn't it? It's more than just thinking that God is great, having this mental knowledge. It's a combination of both adoring God and acting as a result. It's a combination of recognizing who the Holy God is, recognizing that our sin means that we are doomed to die, and recognizing that grace is a free gift that washes us clean from guilt. And it's also asking God, send me. Let me go and tell others how to worship you by your spirit. I'm going to pray now to close, and the band's got to come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, uh, yeah, you are a God that loves to be adored, and you are a God that sends us to do wonderful things in your name. Father, as we reflect on this, um, I pray that you would press into each of our hearts, um, yeah, who you are, the reality of our sin, and the joy that comes with grace and salvation. Lord, I pray that you may ready each of us to be ready to go. I pray that each of us might have um, on our lips at all times, send me. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.